hello. Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elana Levin, a.k.a. Elana Brooklyn, and this is a comics and culture podcast. This is the show for people who know Stonewall veterans are the real superheroes among us and still need our support. And joining me today is the man who brought Pride Was a Riot to an all-ages comic for kids about space rocks in love. Yes, it's Twitter's own Mia Koopa, a.k.a. Anthony Oliveira. Anthony is a writer, film programmer, pop culture critic, and PhD living in Toronto. He is the host of the Review Cinema's Dumpster Raccoon film series, recur- a recurring guest on the CBC's National Pop Panel, and the Toronto Independent Film Fest's Red Carpet and Events, while his pieces have appeared in The Washington Post, Hazlitt, Extra, Torontoist, and others. His comic book work includes writing for Dark Horse, the Cartoon Network Steven Universe, and something we, uh, and also Marvel, but we can't talk about that quite yet. Um, <laughs> oh, wait, breaking news. We can now announce that he is writing a story in the comic War of the Realms, War Scrolls, that is released, going to be released May 29th. The story is called My Drag Brunch with Loki, and it features Hulkling and Wiccan. <laughs> Uh, he can be found on Twitter at M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A, that's Mia Koopa, where he tweets about art, politics, and LGBTQ culture, and on his podcast, The Devil's Party, as he reads through Milton's Paradise Lost and its demonic twists and turns. Welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. That was such a, I just like love to hear people talk about how great I am. So this is already perfect. <laughs> well, I, I love to have you on the show. This is like, you were someone who works right at the intersection of pop culture and social change and critical work and also pedagogy as like a teacher. And now you also have comics that we can talk about. So know, as soon as I happening. saw the announcement, <laughs> yeah, as soon as I saw the announcement that you were going to be writing um, a Steven Universe comic, I was like, you have to come on my show. And now it's happening. Oh, always a pleasure. I mean, and I'll be back when there's a new Star Wars too, because we have to talk about the next one. That's the yes, last thing yes. we were on about, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. That we like... talked about the Star Wars. Yeah, so <laughs> listeners can go back and give that a listen. It was um, the first actually... time I ever sat in a movie theater and like made notes as the film was going because it was just really? like, fre- yeah, it was like fresh in theaters and I was like the dork in my notebook writing things down. So. <laughs> oh, man. I um, so, uh, so just a real quick for our listeners, the synopsis of this comic in question, which is... Um, Steven Universe Fusion Frenzy number one. Wait, does that mean there's going to be number two? It is a, as far as I know, it is a one shot. But if you're current with the show, you know that the sort of what felt like a series finale, but wasn't quite one, introduced quite a lot of new fusions. So there's there is material to write a second one, but it is oh, it yeah. is meant to be sort of like an anthology collection about each of the the fusions that we know so far. Got it. Got it. Um, so the, the blurb description is, it's time for the fusions to shine in this 40-page special. The fan-favorite Steven Universe fusions get the spotlight as Stevani, Garnet, Smoky Quartz, Opal, Sujalite, and Sujalite take Beach City uh, in on five fantastic tales. I was really impressed by this. Your comic, really impressed by the one about um, uh, uh, Smoky Quartz and like oh, yes. having their identity get recognized. Like Yeah, there's a nice little... I, you know, um, like uh, dead naming question that comes up yes. in that one, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, really like yes. So um, let, let's start by talking about like, how did you get into Steven Universe as a viewer in the first place? And, um, and then how did that connect you to working on this project? Oh, I remember the first, the first time I started clocking Steven Universe was at comic conventions. Um, and I, I kept seeing these like bright, colorful, cosplays and not knowing what they were but noticing how queer its fan base was like mm-hmm. um which is something i try to keep <laughs> my ear to the ground about uh and then i went and watched it and I immediately fell in love i mean it's doing so much of the stuff that interests me it's sort of um i feel like when i'm done the paradise lost podcast i have to go and do like a the dealing with the like jewish and christian imagery and iconography that steven universe seems to me to be obsessed with because it is about sort of rebellion and about this strange miltonic like the hard lightness of the gems um so i've been obsessed for a long time and i just sort of made a big spectacle of being a super fan of it online and like cosplaying as steven all the time and eventually i guess they were just like if you cosplay as something enough they will hire you to write it is the lesson i think here (laughs) Oh, wow. I, you know, I, I've 
I dress up as Alice Cooper a lot, and he hasn't called oh, me, but well. there's always time. <laughs> but you know, you're a writer who's who who's who's worked in, in in comics a little bit before as well. Yeah, uh, not a lot, lot. Actually, Steven Universe, through a weird uh, production schedule, Trick of Fate, is the first of my work that's going to hit, the ha- has hit the page. Uh, the mm-hmm. next one is the uh, Shout Out Anthology, which is like a, a queer uh, genre collection that's coming out in May. Um, that actually was the first thing I wrote as a comic, um, but just because it had to be kickstarted and because it doesn't have the... Because it's all queer, it doesn't have the the major backing yeah. you'd love. Uh, yeah. It has taken longer to get into production, but we massively overfunded, and it's all ready to go. But uh, yeah, Steven Universe oh. is the first thing I've written for the or that's printed for the page, um, sort oh, of wow. circuitously. Like I don't have the kind of career where you're like, well, that guy's gonna write comics someday. Like I came out of academia, I did a PhD in <laughs> Renaissance literature, so. <laughs> Even like the concept of the novel is a new form for me, much right. less a comic book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I grew up reading like I was an X-Men kid from the age of eight. Like I set three different alarms so that I could watch the X-Men comic in 19, uh, the X-Men cartoon in 1992. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and that, um, the queerness of comic books has always been so important to me too. Like even before I knew knew what I was before I knew what queerness was. I knew that there was something about what the X-Men were doing that felt congruent to my own lived experience. Um, and I get very frustrated when when comics don't honor that sort of queer minority existence in, in mm-hmm. their tradition. Like, sort of tired of um, About Us Without Us comics, right? <laughs> like, yeah. For 40 years, white, straight men have written all these allegories for minority existence. <laughs> so, yeah. I want to turn. Oh. Yeah, we, it's definitely. And in some cases, like when they began doing it, if you're looking at decades and decades far enough in the past, they were, you know, like being Jewish, like it was more indicative of their life experience, but that's not the case. Yeah. Who's doing uh, it now or in these particular identities. You and know? it's not as though the industry has kept pace either, right? Like, no. um, uh, the 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 refrain you hear for the movies for the comics over and over and over again is international markets right that uh, well the world isn't ready for it and therefore the <laughs> industry gets to be conservative and I think it's time to if nothing else what what the success of this sort of one shot and what the success already of the shout out anthology Steven, yeah. says which has nothing to do with me is because people are hungry for these stories people if you if you go to a comic con you've seen it a hundred times right you see this this rabid queer fan base. Um, that is queering these texts and that is finding subtext in these texts and is uh, spending all their money in Artist's Alley because Artist's Alley is producing the queer content and uh, the, the the big two and beyond are still so reticent to tap that market. Yeah, and often when they even have opportunities it, that right in front of them, they don't understand them, see that we're jump on them because of yeah. the, the homophobia and the lack of cultural intelligence, I think, about what, fandom looks like uh-huh. it is i mean it's it getting better i mean I, mm-hmm. I i have i have i'm starting to make inroads i am uh, i am receiving the invites which is nice um to get uh there is a desire to see these stories go into production there is a desire to see these stories brought to fulfillment but they these are these are huge leviathans and they turn very slowly i guess and i think that's one of the one of the things i love is you know, you're saying that like what made you real like see Steven, Uni- Steven Universe was the large queer fandom, and then to see that in a show that is itself queer and like made by queer people, um, yeah, and is not just limited in and it's not just LGBTQ to LGBTQ subtext, but is textually such is, um, you know, and for kids like really proves the point that if it can be done on a very commercial medium you know, at like by, by Viacom, basically. Then <laughs> yeah. I, think... I mean, I don't know how apocryphal the stories are about Steven Universe's inception, but um, I don't think it's a secret that uh, Sugar was quite frustrated on um, uh, Adventure Time because that mm-hmm. is another text that, you know, where the, the subtext was rapidly becoming the text about how queer Marceline and... Um, Princess Bubblegum's relationship was, and then it was sort of kept at bay for so long that Steven Universe is sort of 
the the wellspring breaking out somewhere else, right? Like, well, screw mm-hmm. you, I'll make my own queerness, right? And mm-hmm. um, I I think that there is, I think that I mean, working as I did for so long on the whitest, straightest, oldest, deadest white men, there is something to be said for queering the canon, and there is something to yeah. be said for making your own texts. And um, I think both are important strategies that go hand in hand, and. Um, I mean, we've been waiting, uh, what, there have been Marvel movies for 19 years, and now they're like the first queer hero. It's like, kids have stopped being kids in the time you made them wait, right? Yeah, So totally. it's it's nice to see these texts spring up um, fully formed and be those texts that don't otherwise exist. I'm so happy, I'm so glad that Rebecca Sugar made this sandbox for me to play in, even for as little as I got to so far. I mean, that's the interesting thing, too, right? Like, for a lot of us, being able to have these, like, official queer characters in media um, when we didn't really get to have that as children. And, you know, there's lots of entertainment that is aimed at adults that has LGBTQ characters in it that Mm -hmm. means nothing to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, A lot of it even made by queer women, and it means nothing to me. And it's like, and, and, and it's... It, it's you know it's not genre that I like it's you know music is wrong the aesthetic is off something is just doesn't right. connect and so I think like I don't I don't want I don't think that the affection that I have for Stephen Universe in particular um, but you know also for the for Adventure Time now that especially with it having be having cleared up it's any any ambiguities in its finale there but like um that's how you have to do it these days right is like these cartoons always have that last i don't know if i can swear like that last screw you in the final seconds like legend of Korra did the same thing where it's like well you watch the whole thing and guess what (laughs) they're dirty bisexuals Ah, yeah yeah. um and Um, to your point like it it's true that sometimes these texts exist that don't speak to us, but also these texts exist that are for adults, right? Like what's nice yeah, about these, adults. yeah. What's nice about these texts though is like there is nothing inherently adult about being queer, and that I think mm. is what's important to something like Steven Universe. Like there is, it is not something. I mean, so much we were so worried about this comic pressing up against international censors because it's adult content, and like, how what does what kind of rainbow flag will they let you get away with, et cetera, et cetera? And it's, um, it's such an important and like it it it's annoying. You have to keep saying it, but you do like being queer is not necessarily an adult narrative, right? No, I mean, and but it's just interesting to me that I feel like the places that I've seen the most interesting and compelling, like queer characters for a lot of folks who I know is in media aimed at all ages, whether it's like Lumberjanes or Steven Universe, like it's not even like the, the, the quote adult quote focused work isn't really making it to us very well. Yeah. I mean, there's something, there's something elemental about, I mean, there's something mythic about like Mm -hmm. all ages content, right? Like Mm -hmm. Steve, I have one of the, one of, the, one of the tweets I still deal with years later, um, I tweeted about how like adult fiction is like I am I am dismayed by my life. Shall I cheat on my Shall I cheat on my <laughs> wife? Perhaps and like meanwhile, YA is like it's time to overthrow the government and then overthrow its Maoist successor. Right? Like I think that yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think that as much as there's so much interesting things to say about the the adult turn to YA in our contemporary moment, one of the reasons is because YA is sort of. Uh, refuses to be cynical about the changeability of the world um, mm-hmm. in a way that adult fiction is like, well, I've given up on real change. I'll just either just deal with like interpersonal drama or I'll imagine these dystopian, like my, my least favorite genres. Um, there's ways to do it right, but I, I just can't stand zombie stuff because it's sort of about like the fantasy of like, well, what if everything just collapsed and I could just shoot my fellow man in the face, right? Like, <laughs> I, I I, don't care for those things. And there yeah. is something utopian. I mean, that last image in Steven Universe's last episode is, as I, I was tweeting about, like, it's straight out of, like, Angels in America. It's straight out of um, Jewish apocalyptic literature, this sort of, like, this remaking of the world, this sort of millenarian millen- moment where you everyone bathes in the fountain of Bethesda. Like, you don't get that in adult fiction <laughs> because it's too risky. It's too... Mm-hmm uncynical it's too out there it's too out on a limb and it's easy to poke fun at and suggest there's something infantilizing about optimism and i don't think that's true 
yeah, it's definitely uh, a. It's definitely a reason that a lot of people are turned off from from books that are aimed at an adult market and Mm. but you know but i don't want to unfairly say like oh you know like modern liter like literary fiction isn't like the stuff that gets the most coverage and the most readers is like very straight white and male but that's Mm -hmm. not actually like everything that's you know out there i think that there's but i think that there's a lot more there's a lot of energy in genre that is not necessarily like happening in other spaces i think personally also you know i I came of age just as a queer person in the like mid and late nineties, and it- oh right, um, yeah. I I think that part of that is generational. I think that I think you and I have scars based on when we came of age that maybe kids mm-hmm. now don't have. Um, yeah, they don't have to deal with the. I mean, there is to me though something sad, like um, soothing about the sad gay narratives because I felt like a sad gay for a long time. Um, I, I couldn't I imagine a horizon mm-hmm. of utopianism. Um, and it's why it's so important to me mm-hmm. to imagine. Like, I watch these, like, these queer kids having their little promposals. And it's like, does yes. it give me a cavity? Yes. But also, like, I, it's, it's a horizon of being I couldn't even imagine as a child. Um, yeah. And, and, like, the kids get to imagine all kinds of new narratives that, that I didn't get to. And I'm very jealous and very excited for them for that. Yeah, so I mean, I guess I appreciate the question is like, are, is our love of Stephen Universe because we missed out on queer media as a child? Or is it because the text is so complex and stands as art in its own right? It's oh, that's such a good or it's question. you can say both. Um, <laughs> I, I spent a summer at um, this is sounds like a brag, but I, it is it is relevant. I spent a summer at Cornell studying um, near not with but near Catherine Bond Stockton. Um, Stockton is like a a, th- a queer theorist but her main mm-hmm. the main thrust of her theory is about a concept she calls the ghostly gay child um and the ghostly gay child is the idea that uh queerness a queer child is something you never are it's something you were and you recover retroactively um uh, i was thinking about it a lot recently with uh, stranger things the the character of i think his name is will the sort of kid who goes missing yeah. who's sort of the impetus for all the events who's clearly if you're queer, you watch it and you're like, oh, that kid is coded as queer, right? He's being bullied. Yeah. He's being called fag. And um, he has sort of this, this like, pull to fellow male, um, fellow male cast member. It's like, there's something going on there. But of course, Will doesn't think of himself as queer. Will doesn't have a way to theorize his own queerness. And I think that, yeah. especially, like, people of our generation, like, we had to retroactively figure it out. Whereas the kids now, like, the bar I work for, later this month, we're having a drag kids night where, like, the kids are going to come out and drag. And it's like, that is, <laughs> like, a horizon yeah. of being none of us could even figure. And I, I think it's interesting to think about whether this ghosty gay child is still a thing or not. Um mm yeah wow definitely i I, so when you were you know i think like the particular comic that you worked on fusion frenzy Mm. is steven universe in general is you know has lgbtq characters and is full of lgbtq themes but fusion frenzy is really full of stories about queerness like it's like the focus of the issue basically um so like I, I don't feel like any story I've seen in it isn't like either like in the case of your story, it's like literally the gems go to a pride parade, uh-huh. <laughs> and other stories are, um, um, you know, a, a bit more on the metaphor plane. Yeah. But like one of them is about, uh, you know, being not just being dead named, but I think also like somebody not recognizing like that you're embodying like that you're not the same person that right. you were yeah. in terms of like them having you in your head is. The whole like, oh, I've lost my daughter. Like when someone, you know, when tells their parents that they're trans, you know, yeah, et cetera, yeah. that whole thing. And there's um, the story about Sugalite has like, actually, um, like it's sort of about um, like the danger. They're not quite dangers, but like the edges, the 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 different ways of sexuality. Like it's about thinking about like relationships that aren't quite toxic, but are require a, a talking through. Or like, like to me, it, it has sort of like a almost like a poly kind of question behind it um and then there's the one about garnet's first like 
first fusion and like negotiating the terms of love like the the and i don't think that was by design i at least when they came to me they did not pitch it as a story about queerness i think that just fusion more than anything in the steven mm-hmm. universe world speaks to that um, activates all those metaphors right like when they said they came to me and they said well we're doing this thing about fusion which fusion would you want to write about? And they gave me the list. Um, and uh, do you have a story you'd like to tell? And I gave them two pitches, one of which had nothing to do with um, nothing to do with any queer content at all, really. Um, and which maybe one of these days we'll get to adapt into something a bit longer. But uh, and then I gave them this one, and they they were all about this one. Um, the the pitch I gave was basically uh, Stephen goes to his first pride parade. The secret pitch behind it was. I actually wanted to think about um, the Pulse Massacre. Um, That's sort of the... Because the question is, when they ask me about fusion, well, what does fusion mean to me? Fusion is about visibility. Um, Fusion is about the risks of being out in public spaces because that's that's how everyone responds when they see Garnet in the... At least the other gems. Gems who know what she is immediately recognize her to be a fusion. Um, She's sort of living an out life. Um, And what are the risks of that? I want to think about. So it's about a pride Mm -hmm. parade that is attacked by... Um, forces that do not want pride parades to exist, which unfortunately are quite familiar to us now. Someone, yeah. someone on Twitter renamed the scorpion that attacks the um, the pride parade in my story, uh, Mike Pence, which I think. Is- oh, that's so good. Well, I just thought it was so smart how they had it be a disruptor on his tail. Like the disruptors are used to break apart gems and you know fizzle fusions yeah. out and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I thought I, that that was such a smart design. I I gave it I gave it notes about it being a scorpion with the um the 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 disruptor in its tail, and I gave it a name. I sort of like invented a backstory for this category of gem, but you can't just invent gem categories. So mm-hmm. so Cartoon Network asked us to walk that one back. So you'll notice um, Pearl seems to know what it is, but doesn't quite say in the comic, and she doesn't name it. Um, but Mike Pence works fine for me. Mike Pence breaking up the Pride Parade. <laughs> Um, and of course, um, Devani. Like I had, if I, if you yes. give me any choice, I would want to write about um, this. I guess there is something about Stevani's youth um, and Stevani's Stevani still figuring it out that made made it for me the character that I had to um, I had to put my finger on. I had to think about for a minute, uh, which is why I wanted them to be the center of this story. I've had so many people tell me, like, you know, when I had when when, when I had a sh- an episode about the season Steven Universe season finale, um, Jameson Henderson had, was saying, like, he, this is like the first c- character that's non-binary that they'd seen on television that had any significance to them at all, uh-huh. you know, and they're not Stu Jameson being non-binary. Like, this is this is like Nichelle William Nichelle Nichols being in Star Trek. Like, this is, like, (laughs) the first. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, Steven Universe didn't have to be about... It didn't have to... to, For the sake of telling its story, did not have to uh, depict a non-binary character. It didn't have to depict uh, a queer wedding, right? Like, the metaphorics made it quite clear what these things were about. Um, And what I really admire about the show and what I really wanted to do in this story was um, make the subtext into text, right? Like, we're not going to obfuscate or metaphorize these things away that we will acknowledge the non-binary existence of Stevani. We will acknowledge pride parades, right? Like um, one of the great moments I spent the nineties and the two thousands saying, well, obviously Iceman is queer and having it canonically happen as much as I grew up being like the not canon doesn't matter. You queer the canon yourself, like having the relief of having it be fact and not having to do that fight anymore not having to keep the files on hand anymore and suddenly it becomes the job of all these um these haters <laughs> out there <laughs> to to make the counterclaim instead is such a relief and having that that mattered to me is like the most important part of that comic to me was turning that page and seeing that parade and knowing when you see it what it is and recognizing that we're not going to play a shell game anymore yeah yeah and someday i'll have that moment with kitty pride but oh not, gosh! Not yet. Who? who do you have a particular ship for Kitty? What do you? Oh, I mean, are you Oliana? Is that? <laughs> yeah, I am. I mean, even though like Chris, I respect Chris Claremont like being like, no, it's actually written to be Rachel because I'm just. The, but the fact that he even would say that, like the fact that this like comics veteran 
Because comics veterans are even beyond the position where they could be threatened or hurt by the corporations are still uh-huh. scared to freaking say this shit. But the fact that yeah. Claremont was like, no, it was, I wrote her as a love relationship with, with Rachel. Like, I give that credence, but I, yeah, that's, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I really admire. Did you read his Magneto one shot the other day? Um, Magneto Black. Yeah, it was like a it was like a one story, and it's like I don't know how old Chris Claremont is, but he's he's up there now. He doesn't have to keep pushing the envelope, and it's literally just about Magneto going to the Mexican border and dealing with these um, concentration camps that America oh my God, is currently I love you, running. Chris Claremont. Yeah, I love and you, it's Chris like Claremont. it's not a metaphor. It's very clearly that's what it is. I mean, there's a mutant angle, of course. That's why Magneto's involved. Yeah. But he's he goes to, and I mean, he's never subtle, right? Like. The Magneto, of course, like rolls up his sleeve and you see his tattoo and all those things. But um, to have that comic out there in kids' hands and be like, this is the crisis now. This is what these comics are for. Instead of the usual, like, I mean, like, like then no more mutants and all these things, these sort of ways to control the populace of the, to make sure the metaphor never reaches the level of the surface, right? Um mm-hmm. I miss the Grant Morrison days. <laughs> like, no, it's about yeah. queer culture. It's about mutant culture. It's about what would that look like. It's about imagining a new way of um, theorizing and practicing your mutancy. Right? Like that to mm-hmm. me was a very exciting period in. in it was about comics. Beast saying he doesn't know if he wants to date humans anymore. Yeah, yeah, those are the. To me, the X Men are the most interesting when they are actually about like intramural politics in the way that. You and I know queerness is constantly dealing with that. And like the the moment in X2 where it's like, yeah, you fight Magneto, but when the Sentinel or whatever shows up, you you both turn and fight that thing, right? Like that to me is when X-Men is most at its most interesting, but it's the thing that uh, straight white men don't know how to write because they don't know what minority politics are actually like when the rubber meets the road. Um, yeah. <laughs> Boy, that's true. Um, so like this was your first you know, comic that that came out, but like, what was your process of, you know, working with a licensed, you know, characters and like figuring out what, what you would be able to do within the story. And like, dude, I see uh, the, this Mr. Smiley, you know, on the pride parade float. <laughs> like we no, you know, not, not Nana is on the pride parade float. Cause she's the mayor. Like that doesn't yes. mean anything in particular, but like Mr. Smiley is, you know, he's sponsored a, like, the the donut float and like i think mr smiley and mr frowny were a couple and i just think yes. this is like this is proof that this is what that was yeah but, um, i i was very yeah. i mean ver my artist on this who is also um non-binary um cool. i i think they hate me because <laughs> because like, i scripted everybody. yeah like no artist wants to read the page that i the description that i wrote for that page and it was um, there was, of course, dealing with licenses is always fraught because um, the notes were always like, well, you can't, you'll notice, like, I did try to make it sort of a Where's Waldo of all the characters, but some of them couldn't be there for various reasons. Like, um, Lapis mm. is not there because uh, apparently in the moment in um, the timeline this is set, Lapis is on the moon. So okay. So we couldn't have Lapis there. Notes like that mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. quite... Um, uh, bristling. They were, <laughs> they were there throughout. Uh, uh, every panel, we had to be careful to get things right. We had to think about, well, will this panel be printable in some countries? Um, and there were conversations had, <laughs> for sure. Also, like, you can't, I can completely understand that they don't want uh, the tail to wag the dog, right? Like, there, are, there, there's a line you can take a comic to, but if the property is principally a cartoon, you have to let the cartoon lead the way in a lot of ways. So um, a lot of discussions were had, <laughs> but I'm very proud of where we ended up with everything, um, even though I do kind of wish Lapis was in the mix. I also couldn't have um, Bismuth because Bismuth wasn't, uh, Bismuth has bubbled. to be off-site. Yeah, I, mean, I think it was a bubbling. I mean, I don't really understand when even this, they know better than place. I do when this comic is set, I guess. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it was set in a in a sort of no man's land where all the characters were available. But I was quite insistent Mr. Smiley be leading the parade because I do think of the human characters, he is the most obviously queer coded. Um, yeah. And he's also, I mean, he's also pretty wealthy. He can afford to sponsor a, a float, right? Uh, Definitely. <laughs> I, and also, like, the parade is kicked off by dykes on bikes. 
Very important to me. Yeah, I was I was very insistent on that. Actually, one of the characters we couldn't have was the mystery woman, the pink. Was mystery, mystery woman? Yeah, oh. apparently. Now I, I understand though. I understand. Apparently, the mystery is the most important thing about her. I think I can say that, and therefore the note was that she could not appear. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I was like, well, the Dykes on bikes have to be there because they were so important to me. At even when at a moment when I. I mean, I went through the same phase I think everybody does where you're like, oh, I'm gay, but like, I'm not like that, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm just, it's not the main thing about me, and it's, <laughs> which now is the most painful moment to remember, but I understand it as a coping strategy, but um, seeing things like the dykes on bikes, um, seeing so much of the Pride Parade as sort of like a refusal to apologize, I mean, I guess now the kids are calling it a ring of keys moment, right? Like, to recognize a queer aesthetic that is not the same as a straight aesthetic that is not even necessarily sexually charged, but is a different set of iconographies and a different activation of semiotics to me matters a lot. And the Dykes on Bikes are such an important part of the Pride Parade for me that I was like, no, we have to have them no matter what. I guess to anyone who is confused or lives in a city that has a Pride Parade that I don't understand, traditionally, <laughs> Pride Parades are led off by Dykes on Bikes, which is a queer women motorcycle contingent yeah because you of course like in i mean pride was a riot as as garnet as says garnet <laughs> in the uh, comic the you can't trust the police to protect you so you need a, a version of a security force and what better than um like a butch lady on like a massive bike to lead the parade right like there's no yep. ignoring it sonically there's no ignoring it visually so they would clear the path for these sort of um whether or not the parade had a license, <laughs> yeah. the Dykes on Bikes made sure that there was space for the the floats and the dancers, etc. So, um, and there's still, I mean, Toronto certainly has them leading the way still. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we New York, DC, as well. It's the only time all year I'm not annoyed by a motorcycle. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> um, you also have the amazing line of. Uh, that didn't stop Garnet from throwing some rocket punches back in the disco fries. <laughs> yes, I. Uh, I mean, Amethyst does get distracted by the disco fries. She does not finish but, like, the anecdote she's about to but, tell. <laughs> but but we know that Garnet was at Garnet was at Stonewall. I I don't. The interesting question to me, of course, I had to think about the deep lore here quite a lot. Like, um, yeah. To what, I mean, it's one of the reasons the Pride... It was a discussion we had about, well, would the Pride Parade necessarily look the same? Um, the, sorry, the Pride Flag. Um, at first, it was a question of legality, but the Pride Flag is fair use. But mm-hmm. um, it's interesting when you think about Steven Universe as a text, what, like, in some... In one of the comics, they show a Canadian flag, but it's green. Um, whereas the South Korean flag appears at one point on the TV show as is. So it's like, would the rainbow flag have emerged the same way? And the, the, the question we also had was, um, would uh, did Stonewall necessarily happen, happen. the yeah. way that... Like, because does is there a New York even is a question? Because there seems to be Empire City. Um mm-hmm. But to me, anyway, certainly there have been, I mean, there's no version of history that wouldn't have conflict between queer communities and their oppressors. And wherever <laughs> those conflicts have happened, to me, Garnet has shown up once or twice to <laughs> to throw a rocket punch or two. I'm not saying she yes. threw, she definitely threw the first rocket punch at Stonewall. Yes, she did not throw the first punch. No, no, but she's... Like, <laughs> no, who did that? Actually, but but she was she was through a punch that yeah, was rocket she field, threw, Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's striking important. the right balance. I think that that's striking the right balance. Like you don't want to overwrite the actual heroism of actual people in actual history, but you can place these iconic characters in the story along with the real people as a way to sort of heighten and make it clear, like the heroism of the moment that was there. And and put the story in a historical context. I think right. that's exactly the right way to do it. And and it was important to me to. I mean, yes, it is political to suggest that these children's heroes fought police at pride. That is the implication there, right? That mm-hmm. if there is a riot, they're fighting somebody. Um, <laughs> but 
to say that yes that is political but it is also to say that well that is the right side to be on right like um a, a hero who i mean captain america fighting in world war ii is political too and yeah. it is it makes a statement to say that it made a statement at the time and it makes a statement now weirdly it makes quite a loud statement now because the nazis are back but yeah. these these political statements are worth the saying even though i do feel like the comic winks as it says it because <laughs> i don't know i didn't try to get it put in more explicitly than that it was to me what mattered was the wink um <laughs> i also think disco fries could be a stand-in for the 70s yeah i think that i mean that it was disco fries i wanted to, i used disco fries really specifically i liked the 70s activation but i also like the sort of the party vibe they suggest i knew that most people wouldn't know what disco fries were but oh really when you hear the phrase yeah i actually i had a lot of the tweets were about like what are disco fries wow um, in canada i it's sure routine. am regional i suppose yeah. <laughs> where, are you, where are you from because people uh, from new like york new york and dc oh, see. yeah exactly like new jersey new york people knew what disco fries were but yeah. a lot of people didn't um but yeah <laughs> i figure they're they're like you know, they're uh, boardwalk trash there, right? Like, yeah. Beach City is a boardwalk. They would certainly have disco fries, but maybe not every day. But if the mm-hmm. Frymans are there, they're going to serve them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we actually had a conversation talking about it. Um, you know, I've been arguing correctly, I might add, that uh, obviously um, Beach City is Dewey Beach and right. in, in, Delo- in Delaware because... The state they're in is called Delmarva, which is the actual acronym for Delaware, Maryland, Virginia as a region. Uh, but and Dewey, Mayor Dewey, Dewey Beach and mm-hmm. Rebecca Sugar is like from there. But also Dewey Beach is adjacent to Rehoboth. Rehoboth is one of the oldest gay beach towns in, in the country. Uh-huh. So the fact that there's a pride parade there is like, well, of course, it's like Rehoboth. Like growing up in DC, like people would be like, oh, I'm going to go to Rehomo this summer and be like, yeah, have fun. You know, <laughs> like we didn't go to the Fire Island like that. I, I'm, I'm not from New York originally. Like, you know, people wouldn't go to Fire Island. People would go to Rehoboth, aka Rehomo. And like Rehoboth is still rather gay, but it's not as, as gay as it was. Um, like when you're walking down through town and you see the memorial plantings of all the different benches that have been dedicated Mm. to people from the community over the years and then you hit where like where the aids crisis happened and you're like oh fuck and then you sort of cry hysterically because everybody has a bench named after them who died in the early 90s and those people were all like 35 um but uh but yeah so rehoboth is not as gay as it was but it is still quite gay um, yeah, I didn't, uh, I, I was pretty specific about not wanting it to be like an urban pride parade. Like, yeah. I did want it to walk, I did want it to sort of walk along the beach side. I kind of had, I was at, uh, I was in New Orleans for a, um, Easter, which is, New Orleans kind of has four pride parades a year, and one of them is the Easter parade. <laughs> I love um, them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's like the Easter parade there is horse-drawn carriages, um, but I did want it to have the, oh gosh, I'm blanking now. What is that coastal, coastal um, pride? Uh, oh, Providence. I was thinking about Providence a lot, oh. too. Like, mm-hmm. I wanted it to have that. I mean, I literally pulled up maps as they exist of Beach City. And I was like, okay, it's definitely going to come around this corner. Um, and then it's going to go along the waterfront. And that, to me, yeah, it, I, I wanted it to be small town and beachy. Um and if you look in the distance, you can see the whole wrestling team is there. It seems to be an important part of beach city culture. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, no, I think it's I think it's very important to show that this isn't just happening in cities, and it's also true. You know. Yeah, I wanted. I also wanted like some corporate sponsorship in insofar as Mr. Smiley is sort of mm-hmm. the the corporate presence in town, but I wanted it to feel homegrowny. Like I have. Um, I have Greg pulling the the float with the band behind it. Like I wanted yeah. it to feel the way I miss the way Pride used to feel. You know, like yeah. instead of all these corporate floats and uniformed marching cops. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I don't go to I don't go to corporate Pride, but I live in New York, so like we have the Dyke March. You know. Right. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't know that every city has the same. And I think offering. I think Ver did an amazing job of not just putting all the characters we know in the parade, but depicting a lot of people we don't know and really want to know, right? Like, yeah. I'm fascinated by so many of the the little stories that they got in there, um, these little glimpses of queer lives. Like that to me, 
as a kid, I would have I would have eaten that panel up, um, and I wanted to put in a lot of elements that would have spoken to me as a kid too. Like, there's this sequence where um, Stephen like goes into Lion's mane and then pops up upside down, and he speaks upside down. Like <laughs> that yes. to me, I would have loved that as a kid, turning the comic around and doing and looking at it like that. So I, I wanted these little. I want. I imagine somebody reading it over and over and over again, and that mattered to me. Sort of having that kind of, as much as it makes the poor artist suffer to have to draw all these crowd sequences. <laughs> but. No, but it's totally paid off. And like, I, I I love that Stephen went out of his way to go and include Lars and the off colors through the portal in Pride by like throwing the, the confetti on them. Yeah, the, the off colors matter a lot. I mean, they are particularly queer, right? Like, they are sort yeah. of this. Um, what matters to me in my own, I would do some work with Rainbow Railroad here in Toronto. Rainbow Railroad works with um, queer refugees, trying to get them out of places where they're unsafe um, to somewhere they can live with more dignity and with um, more out lives, whether that's to Canada or whether that's just, you know, two countries over from where they might be. Um, and the off colors to me are sort of that queer diaspora that we need to keep in mind, the sort of the people who are out there who can't be as out as we can and who can't be at pride. Um, the people we we can't always access and can't always save, but have to keep in mind, I think is important. Um, I know this is a lot, this is heavy for a children's comic, but like that's what I wanted this to be about is sort of like yeah. to think about the different facets of um, of the, the queer experience that me intersect and do not intersect at pride. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's that you do absolutely capture that and that's important <laughs> for kids to see in those ways as well you know we're talking about steven universe like a lot like we talk about like what's important for kids to see and i i know a lot of adults for example who totally get how important steven universe is for children or who say like oh if i had kids i would totally this is totally a show i would watch you know i would have them watch or you know when my kids are a little bit older we totally have to go check this out together but who don't really understand the appeal for it like I, you know i don't have kids i mean, we've always joked like that i have the dvr of someone who has kids but right. um <laughs> but, you know like the appeal for it for as us as adults and it's interesting to me like some fandoms they sort of grow the the fandom grows up with the with the uh, cultural subject, right? Um, and doesn't necessarily reseed a younger generation, and others it does. And then of course, you know, you and I are of generation. Like I was a full grown adult with a career before the show was, you know, before Adventure Time was on the air. <laughs> right. Let alone like it grew up with me, which is you know, but like, I, I, but I, not. So this isn't even like oh, this show grew up with me. So like, this is. Um, you know, something where, you know, we are adults coming straight into it directly ourselves. And I think one of the, one of the conversations that has been particularly active online right now, and that I think is worth, I guess I would say trying to tap, trying to, trying to have us put our minds to, cause I'm not really crazy about a lot of quote, the discourse quote is like uh-huh. how and why, like, it's okay and not just okay because it's fun, but okay as in like actually has artistic merit to like engage in these shows, and it's not that it's not at to at the exclusion of also you know appreciating and participating in conversations around art that is right. definitely not you know mm-hmm. all, all ages inclusive or that is has no or is like less corporate and in its approximate in, in its proximity or. Right you know things along those lines and i you know i i i feel like there's been places where people have been are pushing feet to be like you either are on the side of like marvel or you're on the side of like i don't even know what's what what filmmakers they're into i can tell you which counterculture shit i like <laughs> right. um they probably don't know them because i'm old but like right, right. you know it's like <laughs> are you you know, and like, I don't, I, and I feel like that's really a bad question that people are being asked today. And it's, we, you, cause we used to all understand that we like, you know, one of the, one of the movie podcasts I've guessed it on regularly, uh, is Wrong Real. And the host says that we cover everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. 
And I was like, yeah, like, I, I thought that was understood, you know? Like, yeah, it's a good line, but I don't know it, that... I, I, I feel like Jean-Luc Picard could have an interesting conversation with you about Godard, right? Like, um, This is true. He is, a gro- he is a grown man and an intellectual. But, you know, but that one of them is very much American commercial product and the other is not, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, um, Star yeah. Wars is like a radical commercial product that has you know, been transformed our society and like it's great importance and has some very valuable social messages in it and also has problems in it as well, but it's still ultimately, you know, mm-hmm. corporate in mm-hmm. those ways. But anyway, I don't know. I just think like this, we're, we're in this moment right now where I don't know if it's partially because the Avengers end game is right around the corner. You know, meanwhile, like we do see things like this, like us, you know, uh, Jor- Jordan, uh, Peel's yeah. movie, like, being a hugely successful, while, while definitely maintaining sort of an auteurist vision of film. Right. Um, it feels like this is a fight people are having a lot yeah, right now. Yeah, I've been watching me. Twitter have this conversation. <laughs> and, um, I mean, obviously, I, I, I feel very comfortable working in, I, I can write Steven Universe, but I also, I can, I do a podcast where we just literally just annotate Paradise Lost, right? Like, one of the the great <laughs> alienatingly complicated texts of the English canon. And it's, I think that the trying to parse them as different to me is such a pointless and valueless conversation. Like I, I always think of Mark Twain has this famous letter where he was like, sorry, this letter is so long. I didn't have time to write a shorter one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, <laughs> that's sort of true of things like Steven universe. Like it is something that, does not let you see how much work it takes to be so spare and how much work it takes to be so simple. Um, uh, Children's literature is the hardest genre of literature to write because Mm -hmm. it has to say a lot in as few lines as possible, right? Like, there's a reason texts like the Tao of Pooh emerge after Winnie the Pooh, right? Like, because we recognize in its afterlife that the text is saying 900 different things that a child maybe doesn't register, doesn't have the the means to um, express, but there's still truths in them and there's something elemental in them. Um, but the flip side of this is that the idea of like popularity of whether or not something is pop culture indicating its sophistication is so funny to me. Like um, Virgil's Aeneid is the Marvel movies of its day. It's sort of mm-hmm. sponsored by the most military it is literally a text um the patron of it was the emperor right it is a text designed to celebrate the glory of the roman empire um it is a text that is pro-war in the same way that these marvel movies are sort of funded by these various military interests and to be like oh well the i'm I'm gonna read the aeneid this weekend instead of seeing the marvel movie it's like these things are not different these things are in dialogue with one another and they become a way to read each other um to me Captain America and Bucky are not intelligible without Achilles and Patroclus, right? Um, Woohoo! <laughs> and I, I just don't understand why it is we feel like we have to denigrate some elements, some texts, over and against others. And it's a conversation we're having now in pop culture, which is hilarious because I fled academia because of the exact opposite conversation where it's like, well, we can't talk about this text. We have to talk about this text from 400 years ago. And it's like, I... I I love teaching. I love students, but it was so funny to me that they were reading Shakespeare at the expense of seeing what was on Netflix that weekend. When if Shakespeare were alive today, he would be writing for Netflix, Netflix, right? Uh, yeah, so, completely. Like, yeah. why do you have to wait for something to reach a vintage of four hundred years before you're allowed to consume it as high art? Yep. Yeah. This was definitely mass culture. I mean, I think that what the critics now, the ones who have nuance rather than the ones who just need to be like ignored because this is not an intelligent conversation of the slightest, but the ones who have some nuance, I think one of their points is a question of like the, the focus on like art that is ultimately like being made by where there's, where there's, where there's decisions that are being made that are not being, that are, that are part of like a broader, a program of marketing it as a product that like mm-hmm. limits its ability to do what it would might want to do without those considerations and of course like independent movies are limited by their ability to access budget etc but that you know making the orville lords happy is a different dynamic than trying to keep my budget down to right. within my <laughs> like it's not the everything has constraint and you know I, one of the things we love about classic hollywood movies is the queer subtext which has only exists because people weren't allowed to just do what they wanted to do mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. but like you know and I, I, I but but also again the question of like are you looking at art 
that is like also just supposed you know the, the thing I, I steven universe i really look at it as truly being like a healing piece of culture and media mm-hmm. like it's about helping people develop understanding of nonviolent conflict resolution while also offering enough violence to actually be interesting. <laughs> right. Um, and it's about, you know, it teaches like healthy relationships and sending boundaries. And it's like, it's an incredibly instructive text and we don't need all art to do that. Uh, and no, yeah. I sort of bristle at the idea of um, that all art should be therapeutic or that um, art should be non-problematic. Um, I think that, uh, and again, this maybe is generational, but maybe not. Like, I am used to having to do certain work to make a text be what I need it to be. Mm. And I think that there is something sort of exhausting about people who demand um, texts come pre-buffed. <laughs> that like, like, you can work through a problem and still, if especially if that problem is your own sort of trauma, you do have a license in art to make the kind of art you need to make. I think that if we're going to treat art as therapeutic, we should surely at least treat it as therapeutic for the artist, um, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find, as much as Steven Universe is a, a healing, I think you're absolutely right, Steven Universe is a healing text. Steven Universe is a text that is modeling an ideal of behavior for children. Um, it is also, in some ways, about like it is about a genocide right it was an attempt by these this invasionary colonizing force to inflict a new map onto our planet right um and it doesn't take much to look under the rock of that like it is um accessible as a text about colonialism without doing much work um to to recoup that uh and i think that suggesting you can't depict those things is such a strange moment i think we're entering right now i well i don't think that people are suggesting you can't depict things that are, I mean, some people are, but like things that are bad. But I think that there's a lot more concern about like, oh, is this media modeling healthy behavior? Or is the, are, are the good guys, is, is it validating morality in a way that's like completely going back to the Hayes Code, you know, yeah. Hollywood, where like even Rebel Without a Cause, like is a re- remarkably status quo supporting movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm finding uh, the version of this I'm thinking about right now is um, that Joker trailer just dropped. (laughs) And the sort of the the conversation has been about like, well, are we just depicting sympathy for another mass murdering white guy? Um, That's an interesting conversation to have to me. But I do think it comes up against a very old idea and an idea that maybe we're not really looking at the contours of right now, which is that like there is something kind of puritanical about suggesting that you can't make a kind of art that might lead to dangerous thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can't model a sympathy, can't model sympathy for the devil, right? You can't model, right. um, as much as I am sort of, mo- I'm mostly bored by these narratives more yes, than anything. Yes, that, that, like, that was my feeling right yeah we've had a lot of i don't know maybe the film's amazing uh, but we've had a lot of these sort of disaffected white male jokers what what if you suggested something else um what if you what if you where you spend your sympathy points to me is always the most telling thing i'm always like if person has 20 sympathy points a day it is not apolitical where they spend them and that to me matters and if i want to watch a movie about a white guy outsider like i mean i could just watch um, all of them. <laughs> all of them, right. But some of them were taxi actually driver, made by great... Like, taxi drivers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Some of them were made by great filmmakers. I actually... I enjoy Scorsese. I don't... I haven't seen Taxi Driver in a lifetime. I don't actually like Taxi Driver very much even. But like if I was going to do it, I would just watch Taxi Driver. I would not read like... Watch the Warner Brothers branded Taxi Driver remake. And yeah. like I would, you know... I mean, I don't know. Like, uh, to me, if they were like, hey, do you want to write a Joker movie? There's elements of that trailer that would be the elements I would think about. Like, what would it mm. mean to have someone someone attempt to pursue an ethos of kindness and have it sort of broken over their back over and over again? Like, that is to me an interesting... I'm interested in questions of kindness. I'm interested in them when it comes to Steven Universe. I'm interested in them when it comes yeah. to the Joker. I'm interested in them when it comes to Shazam, right? Like, Shazam, mm-hmm. I just saw this weekend, and I think you're, we were talking about how you just saw it. It's like, what interested me about that film is, like, um, it is sort of asking seriously about the... Um, is there something about the superhero ethic that actually could be 
is this actually what we believe? Do we actually believe a person could be a superhero? And that is an active question right now. Like when we, when in in a moment where you have Zack Snyder being like, well, of course Superman kills people, of course Batman kills people. Who are you kidding? Like this this desire to grow up is coming from both sides of this question. Like, well, you have to be cynical, and well, you have to grow up, and therefore can't depict anything that's a problem. Um, I think that. I think that we need to allow a broader band and especially, especially we need to be better about um, avenues of forgiveness and uh, a discourse that is capacious and generous to queer creators uh, in a way that we are very bad about. We, we, we let these like these monoliths promise someday we'll give you a queer character and like, Oh, maybe that moment was kind of gay. And we, we applaud them and we give we we heap awards on like, Meg, uh, what's her name? The the View McCain, Megan Meg McCain? fucking McCain. Yeah, like <laughs> I... Meg McCain can win an LGBT award, but as soon as a, a queer creator comes along and depicts something, it's like, well, this language in this scene is no good, and this relationship is problematic, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The double standard. I mean, I think part of it is because people don't expect better from some of those people, but they shouldn't be doing that then do you right. know what i mean and meanwhile it's much easier to punch down it's much easier to like gang up on other queer people online than to address people with like greater social power yeah because you can hurt you can end you can very effectively a well-placed tweet can very effectively end a, a budding career right like a well-placed tweet will not end Zack snyder's career but it'll end no. like the latest eight page queer web comic you know like yeah um very easily and the internet is forever and uh we're not good about allowing space for forgiveness and we've also kind of in strange ways overestimated fiction's capacity i mean i i don't the joker is a good example the joker has a real life body count right like we have very real killers who have cited the joker like the the nolan joker especially was the inspiration for what's his name uh, it's probably not even worth one of them, saying yeah. his name but like um one of them one of the ones with really stupid yeah. hair yeah and and that to me that is what these texts are for is is like they they let us have conversations about real life stakes um, and they do have real life stakes. And I think that it, that is the danger for an artist to forget that because the world of Batman and the Joker can go there or it can give you like Bat Kid. It can give you that kid who's like they turned San Francisco into Gotham and he went on an adventure. Right. Like there is something and this comes out of my Catholic back. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. something salvific about these texts and there is something dangerous about these texts. And the stories you tell have real stakes and where you spend those sympathy points matters. Um, but it doesn't mean you have to create pure, perfect, orthodox texts. I think that the risk is that we we supplant the old Christian, um, the Hayes Code, etc., but we now assert a new one where you, you now we have texts full of queer characters, but none of them are in any way troubled. None of them have pasts we don't like. None of them ha- perform acts we don't like, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, it's, it's a conversation all minority communities eventually go through where it's like, like you go through an unfortunate example given his current history, but like the Cosby show is a version of this, right? Where you have to give like, you have to play the respectability politics game and you get these depictions of black life that are not really real depictions of black life, but are sort of this idealized version of it. And I feel like maybe queerness is headed towards that same kind of moment where it's like, now they're here, but like you can never break up North star and his husband because that would suggest um, queer relationships don't last and like you know like we have to yeah. perform this sort of perfect paragon of ourselves instead of flaws and individual foibles well i mean yes you know that's what we always say like this the what we need then is more of them like if you have a lot of queer couples then you can break some of them up like yeah if you have you know what i mean if you have lots of queer characters then some of them can be awesome campy villains you know exactly yeah um and by the like the same token, there becomes... I was just catching up on Voltron the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, one of these texts that sort of was playing the same chicken game with queer char- queer representation, realized it had boxed itself in and sort of had to retroactively change the nature of two queer characters' relationships. But in so doing, 
had to like generate a new queer character to sort of solve the the new musical chairs problem they had created like they knew the fan base would lose their mind that what was seeming to be a romantic relationship was actually now coded as almost like a paternal one like a father-son one um if you ever want to see a messy toxic discourse check out the voltron one and what's funny to no (laughs) i'm so happy and excited about how i didn't like for a minute there i was like i should probably know about this i said no elana no (laughs) you found that show to be high production value low narrative value well um you're not going to pay attention to this it when they tell you that there's like an actual like i no sorry please please continue (laughs) no it's 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 a fascinating case test of exactly what we're talking about like um because the the fandoms sort of claws at each other without sort of recognizing the game that was played within the realm of the text, that the text sort of purposely rendered itself problematic to sort of cut off the the shipping element that was happening. And it became like, you can't ship them now because that's a problematic relationship. When in <laughs> fact, that, that was like a much later instantiation of the text. It's really fascinating and interesting and thorny and it becomes immediately quite amazingly toxic to me um uh and it, it's an imposition from the from uh, a writer right like a, a, mm-hmm. a cast of writers put that together and um i so really like for, i really like for, voltron for our for our, our listeners who aren't playing along so I mean, tell me if this is accurate so there's characters who fans like saw as having a subtextually gay relationship with each other yes the show did not like that people were reading that into it so it decided to then begin writing those two characters as having a more well i can't speak to (laughs) child's type relationship yeah i can't speak people who were a fan of the earlier ship were accused of being into like pedophilia or not pedophilia um no that was today uh accused of being into uh um like incest or whatever like yeah it it has a it has like a the show was initially vague about characters' ages. It was initially vague about relationships. But if you watch, even in the pilot episode, there's two characters who are clearly in a, a close homosocial relationship in that they are they are each other's, in the same way Captain America and Bucky has never risen to the level of a romantic relationship in the text. But in, so, in as much as the Captain America movies are about Steve's love for someone, they're sort of structured mm. by this sort of, like, you can't have the movie the civil war without have had love right like and there's a long arc that built into voltron that deals with all this stuff um but then all of a sudden we started getting flashbacks like oh he was a child and it's like it became a way to sort of not have two of the five coded as queer um but then as soon as this happens a a, a secondary love interest we've never heard of emerges from the past and suddenly it's like oh he had a boyfriend the whole time he's still queer one of the five is queer and he has this oh. boyfriend who immediately then dies right like <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> and it's oh. fun watching texts oh, play man. this kind of musical chairsy game. Um, but it's also unfortunate watching the audience then turn on itself because of it. It's really fascinating to me. Um, and it is, it is, of course, now a problematic relationship. Like, I don't want to suggest it's not. It is absolutely problematic and looks like grooming, et cetera, et cetera. But hmm. the point to me seems to have been to make it problematic so that now right. it's the only way to immunize yourself against critique of not fulfilling that relationship is to gen- make it become, it's a fascinating strategy to me, is to, you can turn a text problematic so that you don't have to deal with something you didn't want to have to deal with. Um <laughs> That is so cynical <laughs> and homophobic to, to do. Well, do you know I can't I mean? speak to intention. And like I said, I actually do like, I like Voltron a lot as sort of, there's this kind of um, thread of Canadian sci-fi that Voltron is a part of, like Battlestar Galactica and like Mass hmm. Effect, this sort of um, clean-lined, um, ponderous ships engaging in long military battles with like operatic music. It activates all that stuff for me. So I like it as huh. a text. Um, I would love to to write it, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's it's depiction of queerness to me is so fascinating um, and messy, and I like the mess of it too. That's interesting. Yeah, I um, well, thank you for that insight. Like, I feel like that particular, th- I feel like it was worth going into this Voltron question because it's the sort of thing that I can see playing out in lots of well, one because I wanted some clarity about it without having to do the work myself, but two. Um, <laughs> Because I, it's something I can see playing out in other places as well. Um. Yeah, I. There's a general general thing like shipping. It's become sort of a weapon in these sort of these shipping wars, right? Is like, well, you're yeah. 
your ship is problematic and mine is the one true clean like there is something puritanical and something yeah. evoking the language of hygiene about these things that to a 90s kid like me is completely alien right like you you, you took what you could get <laughs> but now we demand this purity of the text that uh it maybe it's it's in some ways a productive impulse because it does mean better fuller representation but it also means um they look less like real people yeah well, thank you so much for joining us. Like, I, I feel like there's 80 other things I also want to discuss. So <laughs> hopefully this means that you can come back in the near future. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. I, I, again, like, I'm happy to be back whenever. Um, and I want to talk about the uh, the religious subtext from um, Stephen Universe if when the show does come back, which I still feel like that finale felt like a real finale to me. Didn't it really? Like... I know, yeah. like I, I mean, there's things still to talk about. I would, I would love to see it run another ten years. But as a series, occasionally shows have a perfect ending in the middle of the show. Like Buffy had this in season five, where it's like mm. that's the most perfect series finale you could have had, and they continue. And <laughs> we, who knows if the ending will keep going? But it's like so many things wrapped up so beautifully, and like I just sat there crying for three minutes when it was ending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I, I, like I said on the episode where we covered it, like, I think if there is going to be more, which there is, we know, but like, I think what's missing is sort of how do the gems integrate with Earth now? Like, they don't really have, like, there's still, like, Ronaldo still thinks they're Sneeple, snake people. You know what I mean? Like, how do the, how, how do the gems <laughs> reconcile with, the, with Earthlings, like, in a broader yeah. way? I think yeah, it's, it's the... Actually, it's one of those things that I think are so fascinating in queer texts, is like, what happens after the good apocalypse the apocalypse like what happens when you what happens when all your dreams come true like it's sort of the thing that the matrix also sort of tried to figure out like okay you didn't defeat the machines now you live with the machines what what happens now you know um achieving some kind of synthesis again mass effect like over and against the annihilation of your foe right like there was no great final death at the end of steven universe instead it's sort of just like forgiveness for everybody what does it look like what does it look like to forgive the orchestrators of like multi-hundred planetary colonization efforts right like <laughs> there is blood yeah. on those gems hands that is not yeah. dealt with um and i like the a idea a lot of, of people have pointed out to that as being like the big the big hole in this conclusion is like what if we're not all okay with forgiving the diamonds yeah it's you know? and it's an interesting it is a it is a pressure you can put on Steven Universe, right? Like, uh, forgiveness, it, are you suggesting a radical forgiveness that does, truly does forgive everybody? What does it mean? What kind of violence does such a forgiveness enact? Um, again, it comes to the question of sympathy points, right? Like, well, by by giving your sympathy to these characters, how many characters' lives and deaths have you effaced? Um, I think that's an active question that could be explored, right? Like, what does it mean to have no try? I mean, I'm obsessed with Hannah Arendt. Like, what does it mean to forgive mm. as a as a gesture, as like a, a, a ex, an exercise of power? So I look forward to having you on to talk about <laughs> that as well as the religious symbolism, because that was the thing. I We didn't really talk about the religious symbolism as much as I think it merited when my, on our last one. I am very proud of our Stephen Universe episode, by the way, and I do think folks should go listen to it. But uh, but I feel like that would be another area we could use some build up around. So hopefully oh. we can have you join us for that, and perhaps with a uh, another War of a Star type thing. Oh, um, I'm a hundred percent down for anything you want to have me on for. <laughs> well, fabulous! Thank, Thank you, you for so having me. Much. Have a great week. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, this is Graphic Policy Radio. You can find me on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Graphic Policy is at graphicpolicy.com. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. And uh, we will be back soon. Keep it geeky.